and welcome to the Sustainable Business Cover podcast for a special episode to mark Edie's Engagement Week 2021. Coming up on today's episode, we talk about employee engagement and sustainability cheerleading in the working from home world with Katie Leggett of Innocent Drinks. Carlsberg's Pete Statham runs through some of his top tips for engaging with NGOs to deliver meaningful partnerships. And Davies Senior Sustainability Director Dr Dorothy Maxwell gives an overview of trends and legal requirements on investor relations. Yes, a very warm welcome to today's edition of the Sustainable Business Cover podcast. I'm Edie's senior reporter, Sarah George, and delighted to be wrapping up our most recent editorial campaign, Engagement Week, with content editor Matt Mace. How are you this morning, Matt? Yeah, really well, thank you. Uh, yeah, it's only been a four-day week, but busy week, so glad it's um, glad it's Friday. Yeah, it doesn't feel shorter so much as as compacted. It has been a busy week. Um, But as always, after these editorial campaigns we do, I feel massively encouraged and inspired over what we've seen um, in the past few days. Um, If you've missed our Engagement Week campaign, essentially this is a week of special exclusive content and events hosted on ed.net, all around themes of sustainability reporting, communications and engaging key stakeholder groups on the journey to a more sustainable future. This event used to take an in-person conference format in London, but with some of our lockdown restrictions still in place here in the UK, we are all virtual for 2021. We've had exclusive video interviews with the likes of Dentsu and Nivea, exclusive contributed blogs from people like Neighbourly, a string of features, two free downloadable handbooks, and we'll cover some more information on these later, and a half-day online event consisting of three inspiration sessions. Um, and a partridge in a pear tree, apparently. Um, If you missed that session, I highly recommend that you consider watching On Demand. Um, It's a feature that's being made available very shortly. Over the course of the three hours which broadcast yesterday for us, so that's Thursday 6th of May, um, we covered some of the biggest questions in this space with organisations including Toast Ale, Clear Channel UK, Advertising Associates and our kind sponsors, Reconomy, UL and JRP Solutions. You can find full information on that and register to watch back on demand at ed.net forward slash engagement. That's ed.net forward slash engagement. You can also use that link to catch up with all the other goodies that we've been publishing this week for you. In the meantime, this episode is, of course, just the one hour. So we've got three exclusive interviews, each covering engagement with a particular kind of key stakeholder. First up, we're catching up with Innocent Drinks' Katie Leggett. We've been good business pals with Katie here for several years, during which time she's had several roles at the drinks company, but always keeping a focus on the critical importance of engaging colleagues and generating energy to drive progress together on key initiatives. Beyond being known for its smoothies and its witty and pun-filled tweets, Innocent prides itself on internal engagement too. But as Katie explains, a lot of that work pre-COVID weaved into the place-based work office culture. Here, Katie outlines how her approach has had to evolve to keep a remote workforce fully bought in. So let's play that talk in full. Yes, hello, Katie. It's great to catch up with you for, for the podcast. Hi, Sarah. So nice to speak to you. And you. It's It's been a while and I can see that you're you're working from home, I assume, just like me. Yeah, yeah. Um, as a lot of people, we've all been working from home, but it looks like there's a bit of a light at the end of the tunnel the offices are starting to open again so that's exciting yeah and and the pubs obviously (laughs) very important Um, and I realize it's been so long since we caught up on recording that you're actually now responsible business manager at Innocent which is a promotion so I'd love to know a little bit more about what that entails and and how you're settling in yeah um well it's we had a bit of a team restructure at the uh end of last year beginning of this year so beginning of 2021 and um, I've moved into essentially looking after all things to do with our B Corp certification which I guess broadly you know is about balancing purpose and profit Um, and how we do that is you know getting our kind of seal of approval of our B Corp certification so I'm I guess I'm overall responsible now for the delivery of that certification once every three years but also looking after teams of people across the business who are supporting in that delivery but also making 
that um, profit and purpose balance um, uh, across the business something that everyone understands and can use in their decision making Um, and then yeah I guess also sharing a bit more internally with our audiences as we grow because our business is growing really quickly at the moment um lots of new people um and kind of grappling with that as as we grow and then also how we communicate what it means to be a responsible business externally so yeah there's been a lot of change it's uh it's been an exciting few months Mm, that sounds like a super interesting role and obviously we're here to talk about engagement so i'm glad that you can carry on some of that stuff from your previous role as sustainability cheerleader so it sounds like there's still a lot a lot of engagement and collaboration going on there yeah definitely it's um it's still very much a kind of communications and engagement focused role um i guess the the subject matter is almost just slightly broader because it's more about the overarching ambition of being a purpose-led business rather than the specifics around sustainability that I was doing before. So I guess a lot of the principles that um, I've previously talked to you guys, Edie, about, but also, you know, that I've been working on for the last few years are around engagement and communications. I'm still using all of that in my in my current role as well, for sure. Fantastic. And I I wanted to ask how the business has changed sort of specifically employee engagement um, because of homeworking, because of COVID-19. I'm sure this is something that a lot of people will have to grapple with, that normally you'd have meetings and workshop. You could tell people to turn uh, turn the lights off in the office. And now we're all we're all remote. So. So, yeah, what have some of the changes been since I, I guess this time last year? Yeah, yeah. Since this time last year, um, well, I think to be honest, like most businesses, we went through initially a bit of a period of readjustment where we were just kind of trying to work out how the tech all works when we're from home and all of that kind of stuff. Um, We did have a very kind of almost weekly update culture at Innocent before. So we would run weekly Monday morning meetings um, in person in the office and you would be able to dial into those but they it wasn't the easiest to dial into if I'm honest so I guess you know some of those tech updates have been really positive and will continue to be but we've moved from a much more I guess weekly update culture where I think people felt quite connected to what was happening in different parts of the teams and offices we now have moved to a I guess a monthly version of that mm-hmm. which isn't without challenge because I think people do feel a little bit more disconnected but I also think that's kind of to be um, expected in this you know we've now got 700 individual offices rather than a handful across the world so that that's a bit of a challenge Um, so yeah that move to kind of monthly meetings um, and then as with everyone else you know we're doing a lot of uh, online meetings um, and, and a lot of screen time But I would say fundamentally the way that Innocent communicates, i.e., you know, the tone of voice that we use, you know, the benefits that we give to our employees and things like that, that those things haven't, they've had to pivot a bit, but they haven't fundamentally changed. I would say, you know, we're still getting nice little send outs to people's homes and freebies from fellow B Corps and um, we're still maintaining that if you need screen time, walk away from your screen and maybe have a walking meeting. And some of those things have been definitely uh, the, the culture of innocent has yeah maintained throughout this period, um, I would say. Mm-hmm. And do, do you think that some of those learnings are going to going to stick as obviously we're in the UK and lockdowns lifting a bit? Or, or are you keen to get back to the sort of um, model of engagement and communications from from pre lockdown? I think there are real benefits of the way we're doing it now. And I think the learning we'll take away is that we've had much more of a a, a group wide communications approach since we've been in this in, in this new world, because everything's been online. So it makes it so much easier for that to be readily available for everyone um, rather than previously where you might have had um, a, a Monday morning meeting, like I mentioned, but those would be just in one office or each individual office would do their own meeting so if we wanted to do a sustainability or or responsible business b corp update we would have to go to each of those individual 
Monday morning meetings. Whereas now we go to one monthly version and we share those messages and the communication channels have become, I'd say, much more defined. And that's the key thing that I think we'll take forward from from this fantastic and obviously pre pre lockdown i have been along to fruit towers and yeah the business does have this really unique office culture um i'd say and as as we've mentioned before this unique purpose statement as as well so beyond the fact that some of these things just would work really well at innocent naturally i was wondering if you had top tips for engaging staff that might apply apply a bit more universally yeah, absolutely. So I think one thing, and I, obviously this is a specific thing for responsible business, or, or and we certainly use this for B Corp, um, is this idea of having an objective on every single person's objectives that is specifically related to the area of the business that we're talking about. So for, for us, that is, we have responsible, we, we call them force for good roles, and those sit on everyone's objectives. Those I would say, and I mean, Sarah, you've heard me talk about these so many times, but um, I would say that those are very much a universal thing that I can imagine any company could implement. And also you can implement them across regions like it's not office specific you don't need to even have an office to have those in place mm-hmm. and they what I think those roles do is allow real tangible people to feel really tangibly involved in what the business is doing to be a force for good it's not necessarily a communications tool but it is an engagement tool that I think has been that I certainly have seen has been really powerful at Innocent. Mm. It's that um, accountability piece as well isn't it that people know that it it is their responsibility it doesn't yeah. just sit with someone else absolutely and I think it's the accountability and also the flexibility to be able to choose your own role so we have kind of four banner roles um, and then we ask people to choose or to write their own objective that sits underneath those roles and I think that flexibility allows people to choose an area that they're really interested in so whether that be it could be sustainability, but it could also be that they're really interested in our commitment to making nutritious products and they want to get involved in that or our commitment to charitable giving. And all of that ladders up to what makes us a B Corp so they can do any of those things. Um, but fundamentally, it's the flexibility of the choice that uh, and I think that makes people much more willing to want to get involved. Mm-hmm. I think that's a great approach in that it it makes it feel less like a chore or an add-on and more like something that they'd be interested in doing in the first place or keen to put on their own to-do lists. A hundred percent. Because I th- And I think when we made these roles a lot, quite a lot of years ago now, that was the kind of ambition behind them was that as, as the business was growing and as we had this kind of growing sustainability strategy and, and growing ambition around purpose of the business, you can't deliver that just with a single team doing all of that work you need people across the business to be engaged with it you know a business is only driven by the people that work in it so you're, you're not going to get any traction doing that with just a few people you, you need everyone to be on board but not everyone has the same drivers not everyone has the same you know things that they're interested in so by allowing the flexibility of choice it still allows a connection to purpose and it still allows you to meet ultimately your, your targets around purpose, but it allows people to do the things that they are most passionate about. And I think, well, certainly I feel that I'm the best at work and in my job when I'm the most passionate about the work that I'm doing. So I can only assume that that's the case for everyone. Yes, thank you so much to Katie for her time. Some great takeaways there for anyone engaging with colleagues remotely and for anyone pondering how colleagues can be brought along on that B Corp certification journey. Um, Matt, I know that in Thursday's session, you were chairing the first session, which was a Q&A and a little more conversational and less presentation-y than mine. So I was wondering if you had any more key takeaways on um, on yes, yeah, staff engagement from from your session. Yeah, um, I know, you know, we, we've done Engage um, for a few years now. It started off as a physical conference, um, transitioned last year to an online event and and this year's a paid online event, which I, I suppose um, highlights how, you know, how much sustainability professionals want to get to grips with this topic of engagement, um, behaviour change, reporting, everything that kind of uh, is enveloped into it. And 
One thing that always struck me was that the the topic of engagement has changed from a few years ago when it was like, I need to get people aware of this. I need to get people aware of sustainability. I need to get people aware of climate change. That was the first step. It wasn't necessarily them acting on it. It was just making them aware that their job role and their job function has an impact. Now it's at the point where, based on the discussions we had yesterday, everyone's aware now everyone's aware of sustainability everyone's aware of climate change and everyone inherently wants to do the right thing uh, uh, they will have their own preconceptions or misconceptions their own motives and drivers which may clash with what is the right thing through the terms of sustainability they might be preoccupied with their own job and the way things done that you know maybe things get done quicker if they do things a certain way but but inherently everyone wants to do the right thing so engagement's no longer really about um making them aware of the severity of the challenge because that's mm-hmm. quite um i did a i did a susty talk um this week with uh Genesis, and she basically said you know fear doesn't really drive that much change at least not not the kind of long-lasting uh almost kind of um subconscious change that you want if you can instead embrace it through that your actions will have a positive impact and here's how and kind of really explain that in real layman's terms which is stripped back of jargon um that that you know us and, and the sustainability community will understand but that others may not you're you're then you've got such a, an easier road mm-hmm. ahead um so i think the real interesting thing about the sessions yesterday was um how basically this topic of engagement has shifted from how do i get people aware of the topic to how do i get people to act on the topic in a way where they don't feel it's an extra burden to their current job functions which is great to see Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had something noted down about about this as well. So this idea of that people are now aware that they need to feel that it's not a chore and not an insurmountable global challenge. It needs to be something that they can break down in their daily role and that has a benefit for them as well. Um, so I've I've heard about the idea of of not only getting buy-in but making sure that staff feel that it's theirs. So if they can co-develop or if they have an option to pick. Um, to pick a personal touch point or issue that they really care about, then that's a good way to go. Mm, and, you know, as, as Casey explained in that first interview, you know, that Innocent have kind of done that brilliantly. I think everyone in the, in the company has a kind of sustainability action embedded into their contract and their KPIs and um, not in a way that, like, like we said, this isn't an extra burden. This is something that helps you with your job. It helps us with our job and it helps the, the planet. And I think that that... Uh, that win-win-win scenario is is the key uh, outcome of all of this. Mm. Interestingly, it's actually what we're seeing mirrored at a national level as well. Some people aren't just bought in with net zero. They want to know about the job creation and the economic value and the health benefits and, and things like that seem to get the buy into. And at the end of the day, I'd say, obviously, employees are, are just people. <laughs> we're just, yeah. just individuals. So any individual behaviour change learnings will apply as well. Yeah, I mean, it is it is that personal aspect. You uh, in a the, the, you know the cynic in me says that people would care more about their own job security, their own income, than the prosperity of a planet where they probably don't see the impacts of climate change. You know, in the UK, it's it's largely flooding, and and that's kind of really yeah, really basic terms. That's how you can picture climate change in the UK. But people will be more concerned with their own uh, economic welfare, certainly in this current economic climate. So if you can make a narrative around this green recovery, which, you know, the the UK government and businesses have that couples environmental stewardship with economic prosperity, everyone's or at least the majority will be on board. And that's sorry, I'm rambling on here. But another (laughs) key point. Another key point that I heard was it's it's not about getting everyone on board. You will have people that just won't be on board with it. They won't understand it. And they're not not through malicious intent. They they just they're just too preoccupied with with their own concerns. But if you get the majority moving, if you get the majority of a business moving, the majority of a sector moving, the majority of a nation moving, uh, it will it will push the others in that direction. Well, some very inspirational words there, Matt, to wrap up the first part of this podcast. Um, Join us in part two as we explore what best practice now means in regards to engagement with investors and with potential NGO partners.
Hello and welcome back to this special edition of the Sustainable Business Cover podcast where we're wrapping up ED's Engagement Week 2021. When I say we, I mean me, ED's senior reporter Sarah George and my content editor Matt Mace and potentially his puppy as as well. Fast asleep, I hope. He, uh, he should stay asleep as well. He's, he's not an expert on engagement, I'm afraid. <laughs> no. So, In part one of this episode, we talked about employee engagement, and for the second half, we are turning our eyes to two other super important stakeholders, namely NGOs and investors in that order. So historically, the NGO corporate conversation on sustainability has been twofold, in in my opinion. So on the one hand, we've seen organisations like Greenpeace or As You Sow pushing big businesses to face up to their hugely negative environmental impacts and also the impacts of things that they're involved in through supply chains and trade bodies, asking them to go through greenwashing and set meaningful targets and action plans. And on the other hand, businesses have depended on NGOs to complete their specific CSR initiatives um, either because the NGO partners have better knowledge or more eyes on the ground in a specific geographical location. And NGOs have been keen to secure business funding to scale up their good work, of course. But in the social media age, purpose washing just simply isn't going to cut it. Stakeholders, including consumers, staff and investors, aren't going to accept business charity partnerships that are limited in times and or remit without adjusting the rest of their business or partnering in the longer term. With this in mind and the context of COVID-19, of course, it's fair to say that we are going to see a new era of NGO and business partnerships. As our next podcast guest, Peter Statham, explains. Peter's also a good friend here at ED, a member of our 30 Under 30 and sustainability manager for Carlsberg and also the newly created Carlsberg Marsons Brewing Company. We thought he'd be a great go-to guy on this topic in light of the brewer's ongoing work with WWF. Pete explains all of this better than I ever could, so I'm going to hand over to him and play that recording in full. Well, yes, hello, Pete. It's great to catch up and to, to have you on the podcast today. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. No problem. And uh, you working from home, I presume? Yes. Yeah. Um, we've hit the one year at home mark. Um, so, yeah, fully, fully into the swing of working from home now. Mm-hmm. I feel like there should be a cake for reaching this point, just like a birthday for a real person. Yeah, I love that idea. <laughs> um, great. And I'd, I'm sorry that we haven't caught up for a while. So I guess a good starting point would be to learn a little bit more about what it's been like working in your role during during COVID. Obviously, we've all had to change a little bit. Um, but I know for, for your role as well, you've also been um, looking at this merger as as well. So perhaps more change for you than for, for many. Yeah, yeah. And I, as for everyone, it's been obviously a very challenging time. And I think that the beer industry has taken a huge hit as well from the closure of, of hospitality. And like you say, in amongst all of that, we're also going through this uh, joint venture, bringing together the brewing business of Marston's Brewing Company with Carlsberg UK. So that means that my remit's grown from two breweries and around 700 employees to eight breweries and over 2000 colleagues right um so it's yeah it's it's a really interesting time and i think and i think now building on that my focus is on how we integrate sustainability across what is you know essentially a new business and um how we can get all of those 2000 people all working together in in the same direction um but i think particularly exciting because i got into sustainability because you know i believe the business can have a real impact um, and as the business grows, that that potential for impact only grows too. So um, yeah, lot, lots of challenges, but lots of lots of exciting things. And obviously, we're going to talk a bit about um, what we've been doing uh, in the meantime through our brands. And I think while all of this has been happening, we've actually seen kind of sustainability growing and the demand for it growing. Both in in my, I have a split role across the UK and across group and. In my UK role, I suppose I see the direct demand from customers and consumers to do more on sustainability. But on my group side, equally, I see the demand from investors for disclose more on ESG. So I think across the whole piece, it's it's really growing. It's a really exciting time to be working in sustainability. Mm, for, for sure. And obviously, you mentioned some of the work that's been going on there. And I set up this call because we got an updated sustainability report from you guys. And then shortly after in the post, um, I got some beer glasses from you guys and WWF. So I thought it would be great to get you on to look at um, sort of 
uh, sort of the um, the NGO engagement um, engagement piece. So could you could you tell us a little bit more about that WWF um, partnership? So specifically how how that decision was taken. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, so. Our our focus is on you know through the Carlsberg brand, we've we've created this partnership with WWF to um, restore seagrass plantations around the UK. Um, and I mean, to go back a bit, Carlsberg Group was one of the first businesses to set science-based carbon reduction targets to 1.5 degrees, and um, and in included within that one one of the targets is that by 2030 our breweries across the world will be zero carbon and this is all part of our together towards zero program um, but we wanted a way to make that tangible for consumers and and to demonstrate an idea that a really small change can make a big impact for our planet and seagrass is just that really it's it's i didn't know much about it before this i have to be honest um, but it's it's a tiny little plant. It sits on the ocean floor, and it might be might seem insignificant, um, but it actually absorbs carbon 35 times faster than a rainforest. So it's that small change for a big impact, and um, and it's critical for the health of our oceans and for the the biodiversity that they they're host to. Um, and then in terms of our why WWF and work with WWF, we've got a history of of partnering with them across the Carlsberg Group. Um, for a number of years, starting with the development of our Together Towards Zero program, which they supported in. And obviously, they're, they're also founding members of the um, Science-Based Targets Initiative, of which mm -hmm. we're, we're a member. And, um, and most recently, we've worked with them a lot around water risk um, across the group and scenario planning for, for a water-scarce future. So we have this long history with WWF. And yeah, the exciting thing about this is, is, is bringing it to the brand, really, and taking it to consumers. I was going to say the consumer engagement piece of this is is just really clear. So aside from these promo packs and the social media, the consumers are just being made aware that there's a donation for for every purchase. Yeah, I think as I yeah as I said, it's it's exciting because it's it's led by the brand team and and I suppose quite an important milestone really of using our biggest. Um, and a, a mainstream beer brand to engage millions of consumers in sustainability. And as a sustainability professional, that's that's what I get really excited about. I think you know the, the potential of that impact. So there there are quite a few important milestones in the kind of consumer engagement throughout the year, including the donations on the pack, um, even donations on the bar on a pint. Um, the opportunity to win a wildlife adoption and, and lots more coming throughout the year. And of course, the really big moment is when we plant the seagrass um, and, and that begins. And I'll, yeah, I'll look forward to telling you more about that later in the year when we get to that point. Um, and I suppose the other element of this is that it's, it's not our only partnership and Together Towards Zero is our sustainability programme, is a recognition that we, we can't achieve our targets alone. Um, so whether that's with WWF or with our suppliers or with customers, um, we're really focused on these partnerships and, and how we can use those to make an impact. Yeah, for sure. Well, I look forward to seeing all of, all of that in my inbox and in, and in my local pub. Um, but for now, I'd love to take a look a little bit behind the scenes at the NGO engagement that maybe isn't so obvious to us as consumers. And I'm sure sure we'll have sustainability professionals listening that are either looking to have some new partnerships or to expand existing partnerships or to just better communications for existing initiatives um, as well. So I'd love to hear hear some learnings about those initial discussions um, and and just taking that be beyond as well. Yeah, I think um, so. I mean, the, the conversation started in a pub, of course, but um, but I think it, it builds on that long term partnership we've had with WWF. But in terms of the the learnings and and, um, you know, how how we, we would replicate this if we were to do it again or others could others could take from this. I think there's kind of three big things on a on a a program like this that you really need to consider. And the first is starting from a credible base. So we've seen the scrutiny of and and kind of accusations of greenwashing growing rapidly. Um, and especially I think in the last few months, as more and more business wants wants to talk about sustainability and and do something through their brands um 
So for us, we've been working for years on, on carbon emissions. You know, we set our science-based targets and this was an extension of that and then taking it to consumers. I think the point is there has to be substance behind it and it can't just be a, a campaign of sort of look over here, don't look over there. Right. Um, so starting with the credible base would be the first one. And the second one would be to make it um, accessible and make it real for people. So it's about putting something in people's hands and making it understandable. We did this when we launched Snapback and, and removed the plastic rings from our packs of cans and glued them together. And that was probably the first time that we'd um, done something very visible for our consumers and changed the look of our of, of what we're what we're selling. Um, and I think for carbon, it's, it's hugely complicated. Um, and where do you start? You know, we know that our consumers have already so much information and so much to choose from when they're stood at the bar or at the supermarket shelf. Um, so how do we convey that, that information as simply as possible, as quickly as possible to help them make a decision? Um, and our brand team obviously do an incredible job of this. Um, getting to grips with the issue so they can communicate it effectively. And hopefully you'll see that come through when we have the on pack and, and at the bar and mechanics coming through later in the year. Um, mm -hmm. And seagrass, of course, is a really important part that, you know, like I said, that small change for a big impact and making the issue and the solution very understandable. And then just the third one is quite simply to follow through so mm -hmm. um and this is what we're working on now and, and it's all well and good to say we've done a lot on sustainability we've got us against all zero program now we're partnering with wwf to work for a better tomorrow through our brand but we really have to deliver on that promise and and that means working constantly to make our packaging our raw materials our brewing and everything better um and that takes more than more than our marketing team and, and me. That's the whole business and getting everybody to understand what we're working for and all all aiming for the same thing. Fantastic. So some great tips there on specifically, it sounds like preventing greenwashing and keeping the conversation going and the engagement going. Um, I just I know we're burning out of time for our recording, but I did have one more question, which is that obviously um, Carlsberg Group's been working with WWF for a long time, as as you've said. But do you think we're going to see more new or expanded partnerships in 2021? So between between like businesses and NGOs, just I've seen so much news about charities, sadly, losing out from shops having to close. Um, from having to cancel things like marathons um, and then as you say consumers are looking for yeah stronger sustainability credentials at the moment as well too. Yeah absolutely and and, and I hope we do because like you say there's, there have been kind of so many challenges through this time especially for those for charities that rely on their shops and fundraising. Um, I think we know that our, our consumers and, and people in general are more aware of the impacts that they're having. They're looking for ways to consume more sustainably, whether that's eating less meat or driving less or buying a beer that's better for the planet. Um, and businesses, because of that, businesses are looking to prove that they're more sustainable. One way to do that is through partnerships. Mm -hmm. um, but as I said before, it, it needs to be from a credible base. I think the days of, you know, the early days of CSR when the philanthropic donations were all too often a distraction technique, um, really. And I think that that is over, thankfully. Um, it has to have substance behind it, as I said. Um, and I think for, for us at Carlsberg Masters Brewing Company, um, we're seeing that partnerships and charities are, are a really great way to make our our corporate commitment to sustainability more tangible to consumers through using our brands and, and partnerships between them. So there's Carlsberg and WWF, obviously uh, a great example. Um, and equally, our Australia Dam team have launched the second part of their campaign around sustainability, um, which is looking to highlighting the work of organisations who are working to protect the, the flora and fauna of the MED, which is um, the home to the Dam Brewery. And equally, as part of Carlsberg Group, you know, we have a long history of donating to, to meaningful causes through um, the Carlsberg Foundation. So, yeah, in, in short, I think, yes, for sure we will. But I think we have to be very wary that, that they remain credible. 
A big thank you once again to Pete for his time and for showing us a little bit of the work behind the scenes on that WWF partnership that we've seen so much of in the media. Matt, as we come up to our third and final interview of this episode, which is all about investor engagement, um, I think we should take a step back and have a little bit of a reflection. Um, so I'd like to, to ask you, perhaps with a, with a bribe of one of my chocolates that I have in my desk, um, to share some of your highlights for this week. Okay, I'm not quite sure how I'm going to access those chocolates considering we're both working remotely, but I'll I'll, I'll I'll get my own. I'll send a drone. (laughs) I'll get my own chocolate from my own cupboard. Um, uh, The key takeaway from this week Mm-hmm. Is that the question? So <clears throat> I was really fortunate enough to, um, and not necessarily as part of Engage, but it actually chimed in really well with it to speak to Richard Walker from Iceland, uh, managing director of Iceland Foods, um, this week. The the food retail sector is um, rightly concerned with some new key legislative proposals in Brazil regarding um, soy production, just production in general, and the potential increase of deforestation that that could create in the country. We covered the original story, a bunch of retailers in short sent a letter to the uh, Bolsonaro government saying and calling them to kind of urge them to reconsider this proposal that could see land use degraded much more quickly and, and forests chopped down much more quickly to help with product exports, which Brazil's huge relier on. And they they basically urge them to reconsider, warning that um, Moriarty may have to be introduced if if they don't. Um, I got to speak to Richard Walker, um, who was one of the signatories of that letter, about this. And through the lens of Engagement Week, it was a really interesting conversation about how a sector as a whole, and, you know, we've just heard from Carlsberg about the the private sector relations with NGOs, and this will obviously have some touch points to that, but the private sector, inter-private sector relations across our entire sector have created this really strong market shift all of a sudden mm. for, for Brazil. You know, I don't know President Bolsonaro, um, but based on his past decisions, I don't know whether that letter and that call to action will have any impact, but it was a clear indication from the private sector that they want to source sustainable um, food produce uh, across their supply chain. And the discussion was just really great to see how these kind of private sectors who um, companies who, you know, are rivals in one sense, but also realise that they can create this collective unified force of business activism came together to engage with policymakers um, to try and inspire change. And it's something we've seen over the last, certainly since the start of 2020 regarding uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, the amount of times we've covered corporate leaders group, <coughs> Aldersgate group, all the kind of business members banding together, calling for a green recovery, calling for the EU to enshrine their green deal into law. Business as a collective force for goods has never, ever been stronger um really in the sense that those that are pushing for a sustainable future <clears throat> aren't doing it primarily to position themselves as a as a market leader to get their economic competition that's that's a that's a by result of of what they're trying to do they're trying to create a sustainable future as a sector and they're they're viewing this as a pre-competitive issue uh, where if they engage on the matter and if they engage with policymakers, they can deliver real change um we're seeing that right now with soy producing brazil we we've seen it with the plastic bag charge you know government consulted on businesses with the 5p charge hugely successful and then today it's been up to the well it's getting up sorry this month to the Tempe charge again based on business feedback businesses engaging with government is proof that they can change and also they don't necessarily have to wait for government intervention government are essentially setting and even with the net zero target for 2050 government is setting the minimum standard of what's required and businesses are engaging to go above and beyond that and it was just a really refreshing conversation to see um, that that business mindset really take shape Fantastic. Yeah, def- definitely something we can see more. I think Richard used the term like collective business activism. So that's that's definitely something to think about. And on that pre-competitive note, the me- the letter that you mentioned that kicked off that interview with Richard, it's also signed by pretty much all of the major UK supermarkets. So I know that co-ops on there, Sainsbury's is on there, um, Tesco's is on there. And obviously deforestation, business critical issue for for the food sector. 
um, as well. And you, you've mentioned there the the sort of feedback loops, and everyone has a slightly different idea of how these work between businesses and policy and all the other moving parts. But as as you say, it is great that there are some really activist businesses, some really purpose led businesses. But as always, there is so much still to be done, and not every business is going to get engaged until there is that minimum requirement. Thankfully, we've got that now on climate and because of DEFRA's recent work, we do have it on anti-deforestation in multinational supply chains. Lots of people have said that it should go beyond just deforestation that's classed as illegal, but that minimum is there. Um, And we've talked a lot about communications, but something else that we've been covering heavily this week is sustainability reporting. And this, this is somewhere where I think that minimum baseline really isn't set particularly every report i look at looks slightly different and while there are great leading frameworks there's there's a wealth of them um you only need to look at at resources like the sustainability reporting report to look at the the disparities so we've got um less than a quarter of businesses with biodiversity risks um reporting on that in their annual report one in 10 businesses integrating sustainability and financial outcomes but what about the other nine out of ten Of course, the question about standardisation and regulation is ongoing, but all the right drivers for better sustainability reporting is slowly falling into place. So from investors being pushed to consider long term environment over short term gains, um, something that's happened even only over a few short years for some businesses, organisations managing trillions of dollars of assets are now moving faster, more collaboratively than the end users in their portfolios in some cases. So here to talk us through some of the drivers of that shift is our last podcast guest for this episode, um, namely Davies Senior Sustainability Director, Dr. Dorothy Maxwell. She was just a fantastic voice to go to for a bird's eye look at changing sentiment um, and legal requirements on everything from climate risk to nature risk to that integrated reporting. So if you're not sure what sustainability related information your investors want and how they want it while we wait for a bit more clarity um, and about some of those rules that have changed very recently, specifically if you operate in the EU, this is a section you're not going to want to miss listening to. So here is Dorothy. Good afternoon, Dorothy. It's such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. How are you this afternoon? I'm great, Sarah. Thank you so much. And thank you for having me. No, it's it's good it's good to see you as as you say, we would normally probably see you regularly at our little conferences in London, which alas are now are all are all virtual. So good good to see you. Same here. And I know it's been a while and I think it's the first time you're on the podcast in the role that you're currently in. So as Senior Director of Sustainability. Um so I guess to start off with it'd be great to hear a little bit more about that role. Sure. Well, um, Davy Horizons is uh, where I am based now. And Davy Horizons is the sustainability and ESG advisory for Davy Group. And the group are corporate advisors to four FTSE 100 companies, numerous FTSE 250 companies, and also AIM listed companies. And we're based in the UK, the Republic of Ireland, and also the EU. Um, And basically what we do, Sarah, is we do consultancy across sustainability and ESG. We do a lot of thought leadership events and white papers, and we have a blog on ED um, that uh, covers off uh, a lot of topics on ESG. So I took this role as it's a hybrid between sustainability and business, which is my uh, focus area, but also investor ESG. And, and that's given me the opportunity to engage with a lot of the leading ESG and stewardship investors like BlackRock and Bailey Gifford and 91. And, you know, that aligned with the connectivity that I already have as a sustainability practitioner. It's very much been a differentiating feature for me. And, you know, I'm working over 20 years in sustainability in both business and and government. And in my roles, traditionally, our sustainability focus will be all about implementing sustainability in response to legislation Mm -hmm. or customer drivers or societal drivers. But now it's really fascinating to see that the shareholder is one of the most vocal and demanding stakeholders for sustainability and business. And, you know, this ESG phenomena, as we're seeing it, it's one of the most powerful forces in the market at the moment. So in my job, I support business on understanding 
what that investor is looking for and then how you can operationalize it in your business. So in a way, it's kind of the best of both worlds uh, on both sustainability and ESG from a practitioner focus. Fantastic. Well, it seems that I couldn't have had someone better to invite on to talk about investor engagement on sustainability issues. And you mentioned ESG there, and it'd be hard to argue that it's not a a growing focus of interest for a lot of the private sector. But obviously, that's a really big um, umbrella. So I'd I'd like to ask about where you have seen in, in working across the sector good ESG progress and some parts of ESG as well that might need might need some more um, more progress or there might be remaining challenges. We've seen a lot of progress on investor engagement through stewardship and ESG. And if people aren't familiar, but I'm sure they are, that's environmental and social governance, the the lens of sustainability that the investor uses. Mm -hmm. And um, we've recently written a white paper called Sustainability from the Investor Perspective. And if anybody wants to download it, it's free on our website. But it includes the views of heads of stewardship and ESG. SG at global institutional investors. So you have those roles now at the likes of BlackRock and Invesco. And, you know, what we're seeing from that kind of engagement is, first of all, a dramatic increase in their in-house teams. So they're bringing together sustainability professionals into the financial world. And they're also developing their own tools that enable them to assess ESG criteria in their investees. So it's very interesting to notice the breadth and the depth of the skill set that is growing in the financial services sector. And, you know, we would have had traditional rating schemes like MSCI and Sustainalytics that the financial sector uses and that fund managers would use. But now they're augmenting those sorts of tools with their own teams and, and their own turnkey tools as well. So all of that is giving them a much more granular assessment of um, businesses and what they're actually doing on sustainability. And then the other thing that we're seeing is a demand for um, really holistic sustainability programs in businesses that truly manage their material, environmental and social issues. We're seeing a demand for best practice operationally and also in terms of ESG disclosure. So, for example, using SASB for your materiality assessment through to Uh, aligning with science-based targets for your greenhouse gas emissions targets and so forth. So there's a real demand for that best practice. And then there's also a demand for the governance to actually make sure that you can manage and implement effective sustainability programs at a board level and even tied to remuneration. Um, The other areas where we've seen progress have been around the key sustainability priorities like climate change. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you're seeing the Net Zero Asset Managers Initiative that has over 80 asset management signatories in it now and about uh, over $35 trillion in assets under management. So all of that group have come together to to support a goal of net zero uh, greenhouse gas emissions reductions by 2050 or sooner. And then you've got individual uh, institutional investors like BlackRock, like Invesco, that are requiring their investees to commit to net zero and also to have teeth behind that, to have accountability Mm -hmm. behind that. So there's a lot of activity um, in terms of of those priority areas. And I think, you know, in a capitalist market, signals matter. Uh, And, you know, the markets are really screaming at companies to, to to get their act together on ESG. And, you know, outside of the moral imperative behind all this, the commercial rationale is very strong. And we've seen in the past two years, ESG funds attracting over 350 billion assets under management, uh, that's dollars. And to put that in perspective, that 
is growing at a trajectory of double the rate of growth of any other funds. So there's a massive driver there for the investors to do that. So I think that's one of the reasons why we've seen a lot of progress. But if we look at where we haven't seen progress, I think that a lot more work is needed on understanding what good looks like around areas like biodiversity. Mm-hmm. I think that's much more difficult for, for the fund managers to really understand if companies are managing things properly. Um, and also on rating schemes. So the traditional rating schemes would aggregate a lot of data and that can be misleading. So investors using their own teams, their own tools, all of that will will help that as we go forward. Great. Well, obviously, lots there about different appetite and different drivers, and we can come on to some different ones um, as as we go on, specifically the legislatory and, and the shareholder piece. Um, as well. But I wanted to get a handle on it sounds like investors just increasingly want more of this this information. And a lot of companies are voluntarily um, disclosing. So using a platform like CDP or using a framework like GRI or the CDSB. But is is this voluntary approach in, in enough? Do we does it need to be more of a level playing field? And, and do these frameworks give enough information for these kinds of investors? I think that voluntary disclosure isn't enough, and I think that it's only one tool in the toolbox, albeit an important one, because it really does motivate action on sustainability in business. But at this stage, we we are also seeing the regulatory drivers come in. So we have the sustainable finance disclosure regulation for the financial services sector that started in March. And we do also now have a committed asset management industry. And we see for business as well that we have coming down the tracks for climate related disclosure, the Task Force on Climate Financial Disclosure, the TCFD. We have the non-financial reporting directive requirements and you have a general reporter explain approach. So so there are already a lot of motivations to to disclose. But, you know, as I said earlier, it's it's fascinating to see in this new role for for me, investors are moving at a much quicker pace. It's it's like asset managers are taking the baton from the regulator and running with it because, of course, there's a wonderful commercial opportunity here as well. And I'm conscious that your UK audience who may be listening to the podcast they may not be as focused on some of the legislation that I'm mentioning, like the um, uh, Sustainable Finance Disclosure Regulation, the so-called SFDR. Mm-hmm. It's a piece of EU law, but it impacts all UK fund managers who are distributing into the European market. So as a result of that legislation that is now in place, the level of disclosure is really going to step up um, across all of the different non-financial uh, criteria, so across all of the EU. S and the G metrics. And I think the the way I would put it, Sarah, is if you're a business and you can't meet those expectations across ES and G, your stock will be excluded from current portfolios. Or when the investor is looking to add stocks, you won't be added. So there's a real risk that some corporates could become stranded assets. So that is really what will drive business into action if they're not already engaged. Beyond disclosure, it's really about the access to capital. Mm, Yeah, definitely watching here. I've seen more clarity on regulation and legislation from the EU piece. We were talking off the call and obviously that's that's not just a case of the EU EU piece. There are going to be TCFD requirements here here in the UK as 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 well. So do you have anything else on on this regulation and legislation to provide an update on? I think with respect to the the reporting on climate disclosure, already, as you know, in the UK, uh, mandatory commitments have been set down from 2025 for mandatory disclosure. We'll know at COP26 at the end of this year any further requirements in terms of that. Um, but the idea, I understand, is that across the UK economy, all, all aspects in terms of disclosure will be required to 
uh, report or explain in terms of, of what they're doing on climate change and if they're managing their material risks. So that's on the business side for climate. But if you look at the financial services sector, the other thing that's really important is, you know, the, the regulatory agenda that has come in now uh, in terms of SFDR and also there's the wider taxonomy that's been introduced, the EU taxonomy, which again relates if you're a UK fund manager and you're putting products onto the EU market, this applies to you. So this covers shareholders, so any financial market participant, as well as financial advisors. And it's all about providing transparency to the sustainable investment industry. And the easiest way to think about it is, as, as us as consumers right now, we can evaluate things like energy performance on our homes or our electronic goods by an HG rating. Well, a similar system is now coming in to define how sustainable a fund is. And that's really to give that transparency within the financial markets itself. And the whole purpose really is to avoid greenwash. Mm -hmm. So that's important from the financial services sector and, and how that then translate onto on business. Great, um, a great summary there. And I just wanted to ask, I know we're coming to the end of our conversation, but I wanted to ask, you said that obviously disclosure is only one tool in the toolbox and TCFD is only one part of a much wider um, journey. So I'd love to I'd love to ask you for your key piece of advice for businesses beyond TCFD, because obviously that's not the start of the start of this journey. What I, what, I, what I would say is, first of all, you, you can give us a call. We can help put on a more serious note. I, I would say, you know, if you're a business, um, from an investor's perspective, what you need to think about is it's incredibly important to develop a holistic and credible sustainability program and to align it with third-party verified best practice standards. So it's really important that you're managing your material risks and your opportunities. And to remember that the shareholder is just one stakeholder. Mm -hmm. So don't use a cookie cutter approach just to placate investors or to game rating systems. Think more holistically, define your business purpose, own your narrative, align to what it is you do as a business and the impacts you have on the world and, and how you need to satisfy your wider stakeholders, your employees, of course, your customers, as well as the investors. So that is really interestingly what the investor is looking for. And as I said earlier, they're increasingly having the skill sets that they can understand if a company's doing that or not. But then the other piece that's really important for a business to do is to communicate. So mm -hmm. have a standalone sustainability report in line with schemes like GRI and TCFD, as we've been discussing. And if you are a PLC, uh, make sure you have your sustainability information front and center on your investor relations portal. And if you're doing investor events, that you have your chief sustainability officer, your head of sustainability, such that you can really authentically present your credentials. And the other thing I would say, if you're an investor and you're listening to this today, really ensure that your ESG assessments, the responsible investments that you're putting onto the market are credible and lined with the law that's just come in. It really is a game changer. Um, and, and if you don't do that, of course, you're supporting greenwash. And, you know, the power that investors have to drive sustainable market transformation is enormous. And, and of course, investors can do well financially by doing good for people and planet as well. So it really is a win-win. Thanks once again to Dorothy, who is our last guest for this episode. And thanks to Matt for telling me that she would be a great guest for this topic in the first instance. Um, if you'd enjoyed listening to this episode, which is now sadly wrapping up, we're hosting two free to download handbooks on ED.net containing top tips on sustainability reporting and communications, respectively. Each handbook has facts and stats, upcoming information on legislation, best practice case studies and some first person insight from our sustainability leaders contacts. Specifically, we've got some great voices in there from PMI, Ecology and Arriva. A big thank you to our friends at UL for supporting these handbooks. Once again, you can find them at ed.net forward slash downloads. That's ed.net 
forward slash downloads. And they're also at ed.net forward slash engagement, which is the URL for you to catch up on all of this week's news and views, as well as our on-demand inspiration sessions that I mentioned in the introduction. Um, so that's a lot to recap on there from me. So Matt, is there anything else you wanted to flag at this this point in time? No, no. The the next wave of content from us is is very much going to be focused on COP26. Um, there's a few exciting announcements on the website right now. Our COP down to COP26 event um, has been announced. Vote2 is the kind of headline partner for that. Um, so that's uh, our next virtual event. Um, and through that runs the, the the key themes of COP26 as well. So we'll be doing spin-offs around clean energy and transport, sustainable finance uh, and nature-based solutions amongst others as well. So there'll be more information on that as and when. Um, so do keep up to date with the ED website, um, subscribe to the ED newsletter if you haven't already to get an update on that because we are really going to <clears throat> explain the business benefits of COP26, what this means for you as a sustainability professional. Uh, so really valuable content uh, for you guys there. Yes, this is obviously going to be keeping me and Matt very busy this year and inform all of our approach um, from now until November. So keep your eyes peeled. Um, but for, for today and for Engagement Week, it's a goodbye from me and a goodbye from Matt. Goodbye. Goodbye. <laughs>